Oh, hi there. I'm Michelle Weckman, and I am a physician at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in the Departments of Family Medicine, Psychiatry, and Palliative Medicine. And I'm going to talk to you today about grief and bereavement. So this basically says I have nothing to disclose, um, and I'm not talking about anything that is unapproved for use by the FTA. Um, I do do research. And what I also like to say is I have not gotten into bed with any drug companies yet. So what is grief? Grief is that normal, natural response to the experience of loss. When we lose something, we all experience grief. And so what today are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about the effects of normal grief. We're going to talk about complicating grief as a distinct entity with known distinct health risks. Um, we're also going to talk about those risk factors for complicated grief. Um, and then we're going to talk about the evidence-based recommendations for treating bereaved patients and patients who are grieving. So grief, just to start out with some basic terminology, grief is what's thought and felt on the inside after somebody experiences a loss. Mourning is that outward expression of thoughts and feelings that you have about a loss. So that's what other people see. And bereavement is that period after a loss during which our grief is experienced and our mourning is evident. And bereavement can last for different periods of time for different people. So why do I care about bereavement? I care about bereavement because it causes problems. It can cause mental and physical illness. It has adverse health behaviors. People who are grieving often engage in negative health behaviors they may increase their smoking, they may increase their alcohol use, they may overeat or undereat. It also causes functional impairment, impairment in the social setting, a family setting, occupational, they're not as productive at work. People use healthcare services inappropriately. And we also know that there's an increased risk for death among bereaved people, both natural death and death from suicide. So this is something that we all care about or should care about. So this is just a reminder that, you know, when somebody talks about grief and bereavement, the first thing we think about is that somebody died. But when it comes down to it, it's really much, much broader than that. It's not all that somebody's died. Yes, that is one type of loss or one type of grief, but there's a lot of other kinds of losses that can prompt grieving or bereavement. Sometimes it's a loss of some aspect of yourself. As you get older, there's less things that you're able to do or you do things differently. It's often heartbreaking for me to tell somebody with dementia that they can no longer drive because that's a very intimate and important part of who they are and it can be very hard on them. It can prompt some impressive grieving and some senses of loss and bereavement. There's also, again, symbolic losses that we see. We talked about loss of a loved one. That's what people think about. Loss of some sort of treasured object. Um, geographic loss. Sometimes because of work or other reasons, people need to move. And moving from one area to another can provoke grief and feelings of loss. Um, I knew of a person who had lived near the mountains for their whole life, and they ended up moving to a coast to follow a job. And they mourned those mountains for a long time, actually long enough that they ended up having to go back because they couldn't get used to not having those mountains near them. There's also losses of jobs and careers, and we see a lot of that. And people have grief reactions to these. So in the modern day world, how do we think about grief? Well, at the moment in the US society, successful mourning is to let go. Bereavement's thought of as a series of completed tasks. And once you've completed those tasks and you've returned to normalcy, you've recovered. And so it's sort of like when you're grieving, you've been knocked off balance, you've lost your homeostasis, you get back on the horse, you keep going forward, and your grief is supposed to be over. Little attention's paid to the spiritual nature, and I think we're really missing the boat with this approach, because that's not how grieving goes for a lot of people. And by doing it this way, people who have normal grief reactions are often pathologicalized. So what are some common responses to a loss? So there's a lot of common responses. So people may feel numb, they may have shock, they may feel denial or disbelief. Sometimes they get confused, they may search for their loved one, they may feel like they're going crazy, they may feel anxious or fear, 
there may be explosive emotions. Um, I mean, think back of people you've known or your own senses of losses. What I like to bring up is um, I had a grandmother who died a couple of years ago, and she was in hospice. We knew that she was going to die. She had um, she had esophageal cancer, and I was at work when I got the call. So knowing she is dying, she actually died slightly unexpectedly overnight. Um, I got the call in the morning, and I'm like, okay, I knew this was coming. This was an expected loss. I'm just going to keep working. I can tell you I sat in my office, and I think that I worked all day, but I can't tell you a single thing that I did. I was really very numb. I was sort of shocked, and I really wasn't there. I was experiencing a very normal reaction to grief. And yes, while I said I thought I could work, I was not very productive. And again, I couldn't remember anything from that day. Um, I also was uh, had the honor of being present when my uncle died, and my aunt was there. Um, and when he died, she had just incredibly explosive emotions. She threw herself over his body. She was screaming and crying um, in church. When we had the service in a couple of days, we saw something very similar. Um, you know, she's throwing herself at the coffin, and she's screaming, and she's crying, and she's almost fading, fainting, needing to be supported out of the church. Again, that was a very normal grief reaction. Um, nothing that should be labeled as pathological at all. So I've never tried doing this on one of these pre-taped lectures, but this is where I want you guys to just sit and take you know, 10, 15, 30 seconds, and think about a loss that you've had and your own reaction to that. Okay, now I want you to keep thinking about that reaction, and I want you to keep it in mind um, while we go through the next couple of slides. So these next slides are going to detail the type of responses we have when we're grieving. We're going to start with physical responses. And so if you look at this list, you'll see that there's a gazillion physical responses somebody can have. Just about anything you can think of can be a normal physical response to grief. You can feel weak, you can feel tired, your heart can race. Your blood pressure can go up. You can feel tense. People feel dizzy. Some people feel nauseated. Some people feel feverish or clammy. Some are short of breath. Um, some people experience a headache or they may have appetite changes. Um, I was uh, in the emergency room on a palliative care call and was with a family as their loved one died um, in the emergency room. And his sister had an incredibly powerful physical response to that. So much so that her, she started to feel weak, she started to feel faint. Her blood pressure just skyrocketed. Um, her heart rate was beating rapidly. So much so that we actually ended up checking her into the emergency room just to be sure nothing else was going on. But she actually had a very, I won't say usual, but not an unusual and not an unrespected physical reaction to having that unexpected news that her brother had just died. In addition to physical reactions, we also have emotional responses to grief. And um, I mean, what I felt when my grandmother died was a very emotional response. There was that shock, a little bit of disbelief, um, that emptiness. Sometimes people feel panicked. What do we do? What do we do? Um, people feel sorrow. They may cry. There's loneliness. Some people feel shame or fear. And at the same time, there's people who feel peace and who feel comforted by that loss. I've had people look at me and say, you know what? My mom's had a good life. She's ready to go. And it's time. And I know she's going to be with the Lord or going to heaven or whatever they may say. But these people often, while they may still be sad, feel an overwhelming sense of peace sometimes after a loss. How about mental responses to grief? So, you know, I think of this in part as fuzzy thinking. 
Grief makes it so we don't think so well. We may be disorganized. We may not concentrate well. Um, we may just be preoccupied in our mind thinking about the past. We may have trouble coping with changes. We may miss our commitments. Communication can be more challenging. Sometimes people do things like search for the deceased or feel senses of yearning. Um, this is not the time to be making big decisions or doing a lot of problem solving. This is the time to give people a break and, and step back and sort of be nice to yourself. How about spiritual responses? These, like the other grief responses, those physical and those emotional responses, can run the gamut. Some people start to question the meaning of life and death. Um, while some people feel very comforted in their religion, their religion brings them comfort and helps their grief be a little bit a little bit less. Some people are angry at God. Some people feel like they don't trust God. Some people feel like they've been punished by God. And some people feel like they've been rewarded. Um, and then it's not uncommon for people to feel the presence of the deceased or have that sense of yearning um, for the deceased, that searching. So now I just like to go through a case. This is a gentleman I interviewed a couple years ago, Mr. S. He's a successful academician here at the university, um, 64 at the time I interviewed him. So he'd been married for, for almost 40 years to Teresa. They had two grown children. Um, his wife was a lawyer. She liked music, gardening. She was a very active volunteer in the community. She died in 2003 of fallopian cancer. Her husband was able to stay home and be her primary caregiver for the last few months of her life. Um, hospice was involved. However, he said that the night that she died, it was a very hard night. She had hemoptysis and was bleeding from her mouth. Um, and even now, and this was five or, five or so years later, he was having these horrific images that overlied his memories of his wife. However, he still lived in the same house. He still had pictures of his wife up all over the house. Um, when his kids came home, they talked about feeling how their mom was still present in the house. However, he struggled with seeing images in his head, those disturbing images of um, his wife with the hemoptysis. Um, and these were more frequent at night when he was alone. He still visited his wife regularly in the cemetery, and he feels like his life narrative is just messed up. He can't get it quite on track. He's back to his normal routines. He's working and doing all those things, but he said sometimes those routines feel awkward. And so what I'd like you to do as we move through the rest of these slides is think about whether his grief is normal grief or complicated grief, and I'll come back to it at the end. So what is normal grief? So 80 to 90 percent of of the bereaved or of survivors have an uncomplicated grief reaction. So the common reactions that we see are denial, anger, separation, distress, and depression. And these uh, really go along with the Kubler-Ross stages of grief. And this is the stages of grief that I learned about in college, more in med school. This is what most of us learn about. And in the Kubler-Ross stages, you've got that denial, maybe some dissociation, maybe some isolation, and anger, um, bargaining, okay, God, if I do this, will you bring my, my loved one back? Or if I do this, will you make the cancer go away? Depression, those feelings of sadness and mourning, um, and then eventually acceptance. And the thing about Kubler-Ross stages of grief, I used to think you needed to go through one, two, three, four, five, but how it actually works is you can be in more than one stage at a time, and you can go back and forth. And the time that you're in a stage really varies among the individual and the type of loss that it was. So I've been thinking about grief in a slightly different way. And this is the stages of grief theory um, that came out not that long ago. And it really looks at some of the exact same things, but I find this graphic much more helpful. So at the beginning of somebody's grief, um, the disbelief may be high, and then over time it improves. And then you see periods of yearning, anger, depression, and then acceptance, which may be low at the beginning, that over time improves. And so they did a study looking at this. And here's what they found. They looked at 233 bereaved people 
Um, these were all non-traumatic deaths because as we'll see as we go along, traumatic deaths have a higher incidence of complicated grief. So all of these people, as far as I know, had a normal grief reaction. So they surveyed these um, over 200 people every month for two years. They looked at the five stages of grief on a Likert scale. So the disbelief, the yearning, the anger, the depression, and acceptance. And this is what they found. And so you'll see in the first six months that the yearning was the highest, followed by anger, and, and then depression. All of these symptoms of grief really peaked at about six months. And then over the next 12 months, they decreased. And by 24 months, they were pretty much gone in everybody. Depression really seemed to last the longest. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about grief and depression as we go on. Acceptance was relatively high even at the beginning. And over time, acceptance continued to go up. Disbelief was highest at the beginning. And then by 24 months, everybody in this group sort of accepted the loss and could believe that the person was gone. So I use this as an indication that grief over time changes and some of the symptoms can still be very intense between three and nine months. But by 12 months, even by nine months, they should start decreasing. And this again is in a sample of normal grieving um, bereaved people. This is just a quote that I like. You can't go around your grief or over it or under it. You must go through it. And I use this to remind me of the fact that despite how modern society thinks about this, we need to allow people to feel their grief, allow them to feel sad, allow them to feel angry. That if we medicalize and treat all this, all we do is hide the grief now, and it's going to come back later and even worse. So what are we saying is normal, uncomplicated grief? So it includes feelings of sadness and being upset. But by 6 to 12 months after the loss, and again, 6 months is sort of where the people are saying we start to see an improvement. However, in the study that I showed you, really the improvement is a little bit later than 6 months. But after 6 to 12 months, people should be able to start accepting that loss as a reality. They sort of re-engage in life. They start finding meaning and purpose in things. They feel hopeful for the future. They're able to enjoy activities. Um, they've maintained connections with others around them or made new con connections. They're able to uh, have an intact sense of self-esteem. And they can go to work and function as a parent, as a sibling, in their roles without um, evidence of, of impairments. Um, so basically, they re-engage in life. And what I tell people is that that loss will probably always be with them, but they're able to get back to normal. It's just a new normal, a different normal than they had before. So currently, what do we have in our toolbox to diagnose grief? So we can diagnose major depression if major depression symptoms are present two months after a loss. There is a V-code for bereavement if after a loss um, somebody is feeling guilt about actions taken um, at the time of death, or if they're having suicidal thoughts or thoughts that the, they should have died instead or as well. Um, or if they're having hallucinatory experiences of seeing or hearing the deceased. Um, this is what's in the dsm 4 currently. I'm not sure how much I support the hallucinatory experiences because that can be a very normal part of um, the grieving process and it's not necessarily distressing or upsetting to people. It's often comforting for them to see or feel like they hear their loved one present. However, the DSM-5 is set to come out at the beginning of next year, and I suspect these will change. They're talking about um, taking out the bereavement exclusion. So currently, they want two months after a loss before diagnosing major depressive disorder. Uh, in the future, they're saying you can diag diagnose major depressive disorder right after a loss. At least that's what I'm hearing. Again, it's not been published, so I don't know for a fact. 
So I would like to talk about grief and depression. They are two distinct entities. So normal grief and depression can look very similar, but they're not the same. So how I like to think about grief is that it comes and it goes in waves. Um, you have these waves where you're feeling not so bad and a little normal, and then it gets really, really bad, and you feel terrible and awful. But then it comes and it goes. Um, while depression really is that low state that just continues that way. This chart goes through some of those um, differences between grief and depression. So again, normal grief, they respond to comfort and support. Depression, often not the case. They can be openly angry when somebody's grieving. While somebody with depression may be irritable, but they're often not um, directly anger. Um, they're more irritable and complaining. Um, but people with grief can, I mean, openly yell and scream and show their anger. With normal grief, you can relate that sense of loss and depression and sadness to the loss that you experienced. Oftentimes with depression, you can't pin it on a particular thing. You just feel blue and bad and sad. Um, with grief, you're still able to have moments and times of enjoyment. That's a lot less common in depression. Usually there's this prevailing sense of doom. And again, in grief, there's um, feelings of sadness and emptiness. However, depression, it's more hopelessness, chronic emptiness. Nothing's going to be any better. With grief, you can get transient physical complaints. Depression, those complaints tend to be more chronic. And the guilt that people who are grieving feel tends to be specific about the loss or something that they did or didn't do. I really wish I would have done this while someone was alive. Um, I wish I would have said this. In depression, it's much more generalized typically, and people with depression feel guilty about everything. And with grief, you have a temporary impact on self-esteem. However, with depression, it's a longer impact. And so how are these two interrelated? So we know that depression symptoms are very common in somebody who's grieving. So at one month, almost half of the people with grief are showing some symptoms of depression. However, at one year, only 16% of them actually meet criteria for major depressive disorder. So those symptoms of depression over time go away, as we saw in that earlier slide, that over you know, 9 to 24 months, those depressive symptoms decrease. The other thing we know is that medications will relieve a true depression, a major depressive disorder. However, they don't relieve symptoms of grief. So giving an SSRI or giving an antidepressant for grief won't be effective. However, we do have a new, um, a new scale that I really like. It's not been validated yet, so I've got it included here, um, and I'm happy to send this to somebody if they want a bigger copy. But it's designed to help determine the difference between depression and grief. And so people are asked to pick one of two statements of these seven things. So for example, I, feel, I am filled with despair nearly all the time, and I almost always feel hopeless about the future. Or I feel sad a lot of the time, but I believe that eventually things can get better. So thinking about the table I went through, the first answer illustrates somebody who's depressed, filled with despair all the time, while the second is somebody who's grieving. So, like question number five, I feel like a worthless person who has done mostly bad things in life and let my friends and family and loved ones down, versus I feel like I'm basically a good person and that in general I have done my best for my friends, family, and loved ones. So again, you can see the difference. Somebody who's grieving again, would feel like a good person, while someone who's depressed would feel worthless. And so I think this can be a very helpful, quick tool to help you sort out whether somebody's depressed or having a normal grief reaction. And so we touched on this a little bit with the potential new DSM-5 changes that are coming up. Um, again, they may remove that bereavement exclusion so that you can diagnose major depressive disorder immediately after a loss. They're also talking about including a disorder called either complicated grief versus prolonged grief disorder. And so the literature for the last 10 to 15 years talks about both complicated grief and prolonged grief disorder, and I think they're basically the same thing. 
I will, going forward, mostly use the term complicated grief because that is where the trend appears to be going. And so we know is that more than half of the patients with complicated grief don't actually meet criteria for major depressive disorder. While it may look a little like depression, it is a distinct clinical entity. The other thing we know is that patients who have complicated grief do worse over time than patients with any other mental health disorder. So it's actually a very poor prognostic indicator with significant mortality and morbidity. So why exactly does grief become complicated? And I'm going to remind you that you know, only 10 to 20% of grief becomes complicated. The majority of patients get through a loss, experience a very normal grief reaction. People who have problems with self-trust, who don't have a good support system, who've had a whole bunch of losses, or have lost meaning in life, maybe they've lost their religion, um, if the loss was traumatic or unanticipated, and if they tend to be less physically healthy. All of those factors impact whether or not grief becomes complicated. So what are some of the signs of complicated grief? So this may be somebody who's completely turned off. They're flat. They have no emotional um, expression regarding the loss. They're just shut down. These are people who can't accept the fact that a loss has actually occurred. They sort of live in denial. At some point, they believe, you know what? This is just a joke, and my husband's going to be coming back. Um, there's these extreme reactions that persist over time. Usually it's the sense of anger that they can't get rid of, or it may be this intensive, debilitating guilt. Um, we often see changes in health. They may be marked changes. They may be gradual changes. There's often these depressive symptoms that are prolonged um, without necessarily meeting full criteria for major depressive disorder. And some people may just sort of jump right back into life and ignore that loss. And again, uh, grief, if it is ignored, tends to come back and bite you later. It rears its ugly head again. So what are some of the differences between complicated grief and depression? So again, complicated grief is that, that little 10 to 20% of people. It's not normal grief. But the symptoms we can see in complicated grief Really, there's a lot of yearning, um, and what we know in complicated grief is the dopamine pathway is, um, is actually activated. They've done brain scans versus depression where that yearning's not necessarily present, and the dopamine pathway is actually suppressed. So two different things in the same neurotransmitter pathway in the brain. The guilt that's present in complicated grief is, again, specific to the death that occurred, while in major depressive disorder, it's broader. It's it's multifaceted, it's pervasive in every aspect of their life. Sleep and complicated grief tends to be normal, um, at least REM sleep, these patients dream without any problem, versus major depressive disorder where there's REM abnormalities. Um, and suicidality, if it's present in complicated grief, is because somebody wants to rejoin a loved one, um, versus because they just feel hopeless in life not being worth living. And the other thing we know is that complicated grief does not respond well to interpersonal um, psychotherapy, while major depressive disorder typically responds very well to that type of psychotherapy. So what do we know about complicated grief? We know, as I've said, that there's actually not a lot of diagnostic overlap with major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, or PTSD. These are four separate um, syndromes. And so one of the first studies was in 1996. Um, Holly Pergerson looked at 150 bereaved, um, mostly women, in a Boston mid-upper class area and identified separation distress and traumatic distress. Um, Horowitz, the next year, looked at another 90 bereaved, followed them for 14 months. Of those, 41% um, met criteria for complicated grief. And about half of those also met criteria for major depressive disorder. Both uh, Pergerson and Horowitz used the 30-question screen that talked about um, intrusive thoughts, avoidance, and adapted this failure to adapt to loss. And then in 2011, Scherer came out with a, a shorter five-question screen and looked at almost 800 uh, bereaved. And so these are the proposed criteria for DSM-5. There's two sets of criteria here. 
One, uh, the Pergerson and Horowitz, which are the 1996 work that talks about this prolonged grief disorder. And again, you start with um, an event, so they had to have a loss. And then you have to have separation distress or yearning for the loved one. Um, and then you need to have five or more cognitive and emotional or behavioral symptoms. So confusion about life role, heart difficulty accepting the loss, anger, difficulty with trust, feelings of numbness, feelings that life is empty or meaningless, feeling dazed or shocked. And you can see some of these actually sound like symptoms of PTSD. The other thing is timing. You have to have these symptoms at at least six months since a loss. And they have to cause impairment in, in your life. Um, and again, they can't be better accounted for by any other mental disorder. Very typical DSM um, exclusion criteria. And um, there's another set of proposed criteria by Scheer. And again, um, this one's called complicated grief. And very similar, you'll see six months after a death, you can't diagnose it before then, you have to have one of the following for a period longer than expected. So it's really the same sort of feelings, that intense yearning, feelings of loneliness, recurrent thoughts that it's not fair that they're alive, or urge to die so they can join their loved one again, or thoughts of the deceased that interfere with the ability to function. Again, there's sort of a PTSD flavor here. In addition to that, Shira says you have to have at least two of the following for a month. So thoughts about the, the death, um, disbelief, feelings of shock, trouble trusting. Sometimes people may feel the same pain that the deceased had um, or having hallucinations about the deceased. Those emotional, those memories have a very intense emotional reactivity. Um, and then change in behaviors. And so, again, the criteria has to cause impairment. Um, and I actually like this part of it. The symptoms cause distress and impaired functioning and are not better explained by a culturally appropriate response. I'm not talking about different cultural responses to grief in this presentation, but I will mention briefly that different responses are appropriate in different cultures. And how people grieve is in part determined by their cultural upbringing. And some cultures grieve differently, and we shouldn't necessarily pathologicalize that if it's normal for that culture. So moving on, I'm going to talk a little about the risk factors for complicated grief. So there's really two areas. There's an under, underlying psychobiological dysfunction and the type of death. So patients who've had problems with depression or anxiety in the past or who've had dependent relationships to the deceased, closer relationships are more likely to have complicated grief. People who've had problems in their childhood, were unable to bond with their parents, have had neglect, separation problems, separation anxiety. People who are adverse to changes that are very rigid and like regular lifestyles struggle more with complicated grief. And people who aren't prepared for a death. Prepared caregivers are two and a half times less likely to experience complicated grief. And the types of deaths are also can impact complicated grief. So a death by disaster or trauma or a loss of a child is much more likely to put somebody at risk for developing a complicated grief reaction. So what are some protective factors? Being a guy, um, having more education, having more attendance um, or activity with um, religious systems, having a good, strong social network to support you. Um, when the death occurs at home, again, surrounded, not necessarily, but potentially surrounded by family and loved ones, having good interactions with those professional providers. Um, older age also is protective. And a sense of preparedness for death. So you can actually see the role that hospice could play to be protective against complicated grief. And I'm saying that with absolutely no knowledge that there's been any studies that have shown that hospice prevents complicated grief, but it improves the social network. It often helps death occur at home. It promotes positive healthcare um, interactions and can help prepare families um, for a death. So why do I really care about complicated grief? Because it can have significant complications. And so this is um, 
more work by Pergerson, and it, they looked, she looked at 150 bereaved, untreated in the community. She did interviews at six weeks, six months, uh, 13 months, and 25 months. At 13 months, she found about a third were depressed, 7% had complicated grief, and 20% had anxiety. And what did she see in this, in this group with complicated grief? So from a mental health standpoint, they had a significantly increased risk for suicidality. They had a higher risk for major depressive disorder. They had a higher risk for uh, generalized anxiety disorder. They had a higher risk for co-occurring PTSD. And they had changes in their food, alcohol, and tobacco use, usually detrimental changes. How about their general health? And so these are things that I want to say you can't really fake. So they had more problems with hypertension, 10 times greater number of problems. Cardiac problems, 19% had cardiac problems with a complicated, who also had complicated grief versus 5% who didn't have complicated grief. They had more cancer. 15% of the patients with complicated grief had a cancer diagnosis during that time versus zero without complicated grief. They had more functional disability. They had work, social, and family dysfunction. And what's really telling here is the bereaved with complicated grief we're actually less likely to use any healthcare services, which could be why we're seeing some of those other healthcare problems or why those other problems are as bad as they are. So this is a very high risk population who because of their grief isn't getting the medical attention and care that they need. So how do we prevent complicated grief? These are actually just theories. Um, there have been nothing that has shown, no studies that have shown that there is a way to, to prevent complicated grief, but these are things you can certainly try. So get home-based care in to help caregivers out. Um, use empathetic listening and expressions of care, so showing support. Try to increase that social support in some way. Use mental health services if they're needed, um, and sometimes family-focused grief therapy if started before the death, the theory is that it may help, but there's been no studies showing that it's actually beneficial at this time. What I'm encouraging and recommending, and what a lot of the bereavement specialists are recommending, is routine screening for the high-risk bereaved, using either the Inventory of Complicated Grief by Perkerson or the five-item Brief Grief Inventory by Shear. And so I just have these here. So this is the Inventory of um, Complicated Grief. It's a 22 question um, inventory rated um, from zero never to four always and it talks about things that people may see so I feel the urge to cry I find myself thinking of the person I feel lonely since the person died I go out of my way to avoid reminders um, this is certainly something you can do I think it's a little bit uh, burdensome especially in a busy clinical practice um, I've been recommending the the brief grief questionnaire by Shear. Um, it's five questions that you can certainly talk through quite briefly, even in a, um, a short clinic exam. And it's the same thing. How much trouble are you having accepting the loss? Not at all, somewhat, or a lot. How does your loss, your grief, interfere with your life? How much are you having thoughts of your loved one when he or she died? Images about your loved one that bother you? Um, do you avoid things? Are you feeling cut off and distant? And again, this can be a great screen. If it's positive, you really need to think about complicated grief and move forward with that. And one of the most helpful things you can do if you diagnose somebody with complicated grief is actually give them that diagnosis and explain what it means. Explain that this is an abnormal reaction to grief, and these are the things you feel, and this is how it affects you. Just sort of normalize it and give them a sense that things can change and get better. So now we're going to move on to grief treatment. So we've studied a lot of different ways to treat grief. There's traditional psychotherapy, medications, there's internet-based treatment, and then there's prevention. Um, what we know is that when you apply universal interventions to everybody who's experienced a loss, so that includes the 80 to 90 percent of people who are having a normal grief reaction, um, it's not effective. It doesn't seem to do anything to change those long-term outcomes. However, 
If you select out those high-risk grievers, somebody who's experienced a violent death, an unexpected loss, the loss of a child, you do see an effect from these interventions. And the most benefit, the, the highest effect is seen in grievers who report a high level of distress. Still, however, unfortunately, that, that uh, response overall is not as robust as we would like. So complicated, I'm going to talk specifically about the treatment of complicated um, grief because it really has a distinct clinical course and treatment response. One of the things we know is if we don't recognize it in treatment, symptoms can last for years. So they did a study of a Canadian psychiatry outpatient clinic. One-third of all those patients who came in during the time of the study um, met criteria for complicated grief. The average time from the loss was 10 years. So these patients have been suffering this for an average of 10 years. However, complicated grief is a little bit more challenging to treat because we know it doesn't respond particularly well to tricyclic antidepressants, nor does it respond very well to interpersonal psychotherapy. Um, however, there are new therapy trials underway, and I'll talk about um, what's going on right now. So from a pharmacology standpoint for complicated grief, the majority of the antidepressant trials are really very disappointing. Um, there's been no good trials that have been completed yet. However, if there is a comorbid depression or anxiety disorder, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications can be helpful because they improve the symptoms of depression, they improve the symptoms of anxiety, which can make people more able to work on their grief. So a study from 2008 showed um, and we'll talk about this grief therapy, but patients who are on antidepressants were much more likely to complete the grief therapy, um, the entire course, than people who were not on antidepressants. So again, by improving the depression and anxiety symptoms that are often comorbid with complicated grief, um, these patients are better able to do the psychotherapy type work that can help those symptoms. So, specifically, psychotherapy for complicated grief. We've looked at cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, and the theory of that is that a complicated grief is a poorly internal integration of that loss. They can't internalize it, they can't normalize it and find a new normal. And so in this, they focus on exposure and cognitive restructuring, and small studies have shown some benefit over supportive therapy, showing that exposure therapy, having them sort of talk and re- live that loss is more effective. Interpersonal therapy has not been shown to be particularly effective, but that is therapy that focuses on the role of relationships and life transitions. There has been some small work with group psychotherapy, using a, a manual and a very strict prescribed group therapy, grief symptoms can be decreased. In addition, adding interpretive therapy, so helping the bereaved develop tolerance to the ambivalent feeling that they might feel towards a person that's been lost, also can help decrease symptoms of grief. There's also a new type of therapy out called complicated grief therapy, and they combine interpersonal therapy, IPT, to help treat the depressive symptoms with cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, for the trauma symptoms and motivational interviewing, MI, to foster alliance and deal with ambivalence. They do ask the bereaved to revisit the death experience, so it's like exposure therapy. In 2005, we looked at 95 patients with complicated grief, a half of them were on antidepressants, and they randomized them to receiving either complicated grief therapy or just IPT for 16 sessions. About half of them improved with the complicated grief therapy versus 28% with the IPT. Both groups showed improvement in anxiety and depression. And something that was slightly um, provocative, but not significant, was that parents did better with IPT, parents who had lost a child, uh, while patients or bereaved whose loved one had a violent death did better with the cognitive uh, grief therapy. So a combined approach looks like it might be most efficacious for treating complicated grief. There's also been some internet-based approaches, which is sort of attractive in the world today of uh, outsourcing. So there is a, co a cognitive behavioral treatment designed using web and email exercises. 
Um, the exercises were related to exposure and cognitive restructuring. And the group that did these exercises did better than a waiting control group that was just waiting to see if they got better. They had less anxiety and grief symptoms that was maintained at an 18-month follow-up. So it looks like this might be a longer-term solution to help improve grief reactions over time. They've also looked at the effects of writing. Again, this was over the internet and with email exercises. Um, and they found that when they asked a group to specifically examine the possible benefits of their loss, that these ones tended to have less grief symptoms over time than groups that were asked to write about other things. There have been psychoeducational videos developed to normalize grief reactions. These are designed to target all recently bereaved, and there's self-reports of improvements in attitude and anxiety once these are viewed. And so this is the whole concept that if you normalize the grief reaction and take people away from the stereotype, you have to get over it and get better, um, that people do better when you're able to explain that, okay, these physical symptoms you're feeling, these psychiatric symptoms, these mental health symptoms, these are all normal grief reactions. They will get better over time as you process the loss and internalize it. Those people who understand that do better. So what can you do if you've got somebody who's bereaved in your, in your practice? So the first thing to do is express sorrow for the loss. I am so sorry for this. Invite discussion of what happened. Um, ask them to talk about it, but only if they have time. You also want to schedule people for a follow-up visit. I have a colleague in practice who, whenever she hears about the loss of one of her patients, will call their spouse, their adult children, and ask them to please schedule a follow-up appointment with her to just talk about it, and if not with her, with their primary care provider just to touch base and to get them re-engaged and make sure there's not significant problems going on. What a great idea. So those bereaved people really need, and we know they're less likely to come in, need to be seen by their healthcare providers. And then you want to monitor for known problems. You want to watch for symptoms of grief, depression, anxiety. You want to ask about suicidality. You want to watch their blood pressure. We know that grief drives up blood pressure. You want to check on their sleep. And you want to ask about those potentially negative health behaviors. Are they smoking more? Are they drinking more? Are they using drugs? Has their eating changed? And are they isolated? And again, this is a pace where we need to take the initiative because a grieving person is not likely to come in and see us. And so normally in one of my lectures, I, I put up the slide what not to say and let people throw out their answers. It's sort of hard to do on one of these videotape things. But I will say that just about everything here I've heard, and these are things that are not helpful for somebody who's bereaved or has had a, particularly if they've had a recent loss. It was for the best. It was time to go. I know how you feel. So you're going to say this once and have somebody jump down your throat and never say it again. And I've seen that. Somebody who's grieving and angry will turn and look at you and yell, you don't know how I feel. You didn't just lose your best friend, your dad, whatever. You're strong enough to deal with it. So that puts a lot of stress on the person. And again, it's that sort of normalization our culture does. Be strong, get over it. Instead, try something that's more supportive. I hope that you're able to find the strength. She lived a long life. While yes, we might agree with that, since she lived 86 years, she lived 95 years, that still might not be long enough for the person who's grieving. How are you? Which is a great thing to say if you have the time to listen. Asking how you are, letting them respond a couple of words, or not really paying attention, only makes somebody who's grieving feel more socially isolated. So what can you say? I'm so sorry that he's gone. I can't imagine what you're going through. And even better, inviting them to talk about their loved one. So what are you remembering about your father today? That, and to use their name. So I remember John, and I remember the last time I saw him, he talked about how much he loved to go fishing. So using the name helps make it all real and shows that you care and you're involved. Um, I mean, I remember seeing a woman, and I used the name of her husband, 
when I was talking to her and she just burst out crying and said, thank you. She said, it's like he's not in the room. Everybody's treating him like the elephant in the room. Nobody's talking about him. I just want to hear his name. And by doing that, you sort of show your respect and that that you're really involved. So that can be a very powerful way to, to stay connected. So in summary, most grief, 80 to 90%, is uncomplicated. However, it can have a number of distressing physical and mental effects that can linger for years. And so going back to our case of Mr. S, so I think he's having a normal grief reaction. Um, it's just taking him longer to integrate than it takes most other people. He's not having evidence of having a complicated grief reaction. He is able to go on with his normal life. He is able to form some supports. He does have friends. He interacts with his family. He's able to enjoy things. Um, but for whatever reason, his grief is being processed more slowly than, um, than it is in, in most other people. Complicated grief is a distinct clinical entity. It is not the same as major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, or PTSD. And it really should be considered if there's significant impairment in function and significant distress that persists 6 to 12 months after a loss. Um, and complicated grief has major implication on physical and mental health and needs to be treated. Um, normally, I talk about community resources now, and it really depends on the community that you're in. Every community has different grief resources. You can certainly get good grief resources online at the National Palliative Care and Hospice Association, um, as well as the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine Association, or contact your local hospice agency. Some hospice agencies have grief groups that are open to anybody, whether they've died as a hospice patient or not. Some hospice agencies offer one-on-one um, -on -one grief counseling to people. Some therapists in the area specialize in um, grief. Your local hospice agency will be able to give you information that you can use to help treat grief in your patients. And that's all I have for you today. Thank you for your time and attention. If you have any questions, please feel free to send me an email. Thank you very much.